Well, thank you for joining us again as we, as we turn our attention to hear from God through his word. Um, we pray that he will speak to us. So can we, can we do that? Can we turn to God in prayer as we, as we open up uh, his word? Our Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, and Lord, even as our, as our children and young people head out, Father, we, we thank you uh, that they are going to hear your word. And we pray your blessing upon them as they go and on the leaders as they seek to unpack your word with them. Uh, Lord, we, we do pray for our children that you would um, indeed bring them to a saving knowledge of you. Uh, and therefore they would live their whole lives uh, for your kingdom. Father, we thank you that we can now turn our attention to your word, and we do pray, uh, we recognize the, the effort that that takes to now turn our attention and our hearts, and so we pray that you would remove distractions from us, uh, distractions that, that seek to, to take our focus off you, and Father, would you speak clearly to us this morning? Um, I pray even if I'm a distraction, you would remove that in your word, would stand true father we thank you for it it is good and we want to celebrate and hear from you this morning and so may these words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight O lord my rock and my redeemer it's in your wonderful name we pray amen amen this week uh, we return to our series in mark's gospel as we examine questions that we find uh, particularly in the first half of mark's gospel questions that are posed either to Jesus or by Jesus to others. And these questions all display something of the authority that Christ has, that Jesus Christ has. And so uh, we're calling this series Question Mark. We're looking at questions in Mark that display Christ's authority. And so far, uh, we've explored two questions that display, firstly, uh, Jesus's authority is from his identity. When Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say I am? And Peter declares, you're the Messiah. That is who you are. And because of who he is, then he has authority. And that then flows out into everything else that we're going to see. And the first thing that we thought about a couple of weeks ago was Jesus's authority to teach. When the people, after hearing his teaching, said, what is this? A new teaching and with authority from Mark 1. And, and as I said, in many ways, everything that flows throughout the rest of this series is going to flow from definitely that first session and primarily the second one, or secondly, the second one as well, that Jesus has ultimate authority because of who he is, because he is the Messiah. And therefore, everything he does matters. Everything he says matters. Everything he teaches matters because it comes with authority. We thought last time about how that, that authority is divine, it is direct, and it is displayed. And his authority to teach and everything he speaks is therefore authoritative to us. And so everything else that we're going to see throughout this series today, we're going to think about how Jesus has authority to speak truth. We're going to see how he has authority to forgive sin, then authority over the natural world, over the spiritual world, authority to call disciples to himself. All of that is because of who he is and the power and authority that his words carry. And that's certainly the case when we think about today's topic. I, I, I've called this, this sermon, Jesus' authority to speak truth. But of course, everything Jesus says is true. Uh, and, and so actually what, what, what was in my mind and, and what I think is coming through from the passage that we're going to see today in Mark chapter 7 is that Jesus has authority to speak truth, particularly when that, that is a truth when he is correcting error. So perhaps I could have called today Jesus' authority to correct error. That would have been also relevant. But, but I feel like that carried a negative connotation that, that, that I don't think is, is fully the picture that we see when we see occasions when Jesus does this. Because when Jesus corrects wrong thinking and corrects wrong teaching, he replaces it with good truth. 
And so he doesn't just, he doesn't just cor- uh, correct and rebuke error. He does that, certainly. But he, all, he does that with the motivation of trying to draw people to his truth. And so he re- rebukes the wrong and brings in good truth. And so he has authority to do that because everything he says is true because he is the Messiah and he has the authority to teach. And so Jesus provides life-giving truth to stand on in place of the errors that he rebukes. And to help us to consider this topic a little bit more, there are a number of examples where we see Jesus encountering those who are in error, either in their life or in their teaching. And he speaks truth to them and therefore all who hear that around them. And one of the common groups that Jesus has these kinds of conversations with seem to be the religious leaders of the day. The the Pharisees and the teachers of the law is often how they're described, or the Pharisees and the scribes. And we've encountered them already in our last session when we thought about his authority to teach, because the people said, this is new teaching, and he's teaching as one who has authority, not as the Pharisees or the teachers of the law. And so we've encountered them already, and even then we recognize that was sort of the starting point of what would be an incredibly contentious relationship. Because the Pharisees and the teachers of the law did not adhere to the authority Jesus had. They didn't recognize him as the Messiah. They didn't think he had the authority to teach. And so it was the start of contention. And Jesus has a number of run-ins with these religious leaders of the day. And a common issue that they, that they engage and they clash over with is over observance of tradition, religious traditions. Uh, the Pharisees are very keen on that, and Jesus critiqued them often about that. And so that's the issue that we're going to focus on today. So we're going to see Jesus speak truth into that situation. So rather than having a broad brushstroke over all of the things that Jesus says and how they're all true, what I would love us to do is to look at this encounter with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law and see how Jesus speaks truth into the error there. And he has the ultimate authority to do that because of who he is and that he's good to teach. And so Jesus speaks truth and this truth transforms. And so we could see that through, it begins very early in Mark's gospel. In chapters two and three, we see a couple of occasions when the Pharisees or others come at Jesus and ask him questions about his adherence to to tradition and his adherence to, to some of the aspects of the law. And so just three questions that we see in chapter two. Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? The Pharisees asks, because according to their tradition, that wasn't fitting for someone to do. How is it, chapter 2 goes on in verse 18, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours, Jesus, are not? And then the Pharisees ask him at the end of chapter 2, look, what they, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus on that occasion goes back to a biblical example to say, no, th- this is not unlawful, that is tradition. And so it comes to a head in a very obvious way by the time we get to chapter 7. That's where we're going to focus our attention this morning when we see Jesus speaking truth to the leaders and all who would hear them. And he corrects their error in their understanding and their thinking. And he does so in order to protect them and to protect others from the devastating trap that their error was leading them into. And so he corrects error and replaces it with good news truth. He corrects error and replaces it with good news truth. And so let's have a look at Mark chapter 7, where we're going to see some challenging words from Jesus. Yes, some some cutting words from Jesus, but let's always remember, even in those times when his words seem to cut deeply, he does that so that he brings us into truth. And therefore, 
He brings us into life and fullness. We thought about this, as Jack said, on, on Wednesday evening at our Bible study, how some of these, these philosophies and ideas that are around, they are empty. And therefore, they lead to emptiness, whereas God's word is true and it leads to life and its fullness. And so that's what Jesus is trying to do here to the Pharisees and all who will listen. So Matthew, or Mark chapter 7, let me read uh, from verse 1 down to verse 23. And hopefully all of what we've seen so far is helpful background. And all of what we know, th this is not a fresh issue that's coming. Yet just listen to this encounter. <clears throat> the disciples and some of the teachers of the law who had come from Jerusalem gathered around Jesus and saw some of his disciples eating food with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. The Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they give their hands a ceremonial washing, holding to the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And they observe many other traditions, such as the washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. So the Pharisees and teachers of the law ask Jesus, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating their food with defiled hands? He replied, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to the human traditions. And he continued, you have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and anyone who curses their father and mother is to be put to death. But you say that if anyone declares that what that what might have been used to help their father and mother is Corban, that is devoted to God, then you no longer let them do anything for their father and mother. Thus, you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And you do many things like that. Again, Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me, everyone, and understand this. Nothing outside a person can defile them by going into them. Rather, it is what comes out of a person that defiles them. After he had left the crowd and returned to the house, his disciples asked him about this parable. Are you so dull, he asked. Don't you see that nothing that enters a person from outside can defile them? For it doesn't go into their heart, but into their stomach and then out of the body. In saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. He went on, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, and folly. All these evils come from out inside and defile a person. Jesus' authority to speak truth. And I hope we can see here that, that on display, Jesus is seeking to rebuke this falsehood. He's seeking to correct error. He's seeking to train the hypercritical yet hypocritical Pharisees. And he's seeking to draw all who can hear him back to God's wonderful truth. And so the Pharisees ask him in verse 5, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders instead of eating food defiled, uh, with their hands, def with their defiled hands? And so that's the question. And the question and this whole encounter seems to hang on the significance that is placed on tradition. Comparing that to Jesus's primary focus on the heart. Now, we should be careful not to pit those two 
always against each other. Not all traditions are against the heart. Not all traditions are negative. But clearly we can see here through the way that Mark lays this out and records it for us and God has preserved this for us that the problem that Jesus has here is with the position that the traditions now have. So six times in the first 13 verses, we hear of this tradition. And the problem with this tradition, as Jesus explains in verses 8 and 9, he says, you have let go of the commands of God and are holding on to human tradition. Verse 9, it goes on. You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God in order to observe your own traditions. And in verse 13, thus you nullify the word of God by your traditions that you've handed down. So the problem here that Jesus has with the tradition is that the religious leaders have, have allowed that tradition, which is from the elders and handed down your own traditions, that that tradition has taken the place of the word of God. And so th- this interaction that Jesus has with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law actually gets to the heart of what they claim to believe. They claim to be ones grounded in the word of God. They claim to be the ones who fully understand the word of God and are living it out. But are they guilty of following seemingly godly ways at the expense of knowing God himself? Are they guilty of following seemingly godly ways at the expense of knowing God himself? That seems to be what Jesus has an issue with. They seem to care more about human tradition than the God that that tradition was meant to point them towards. In summary, they're they're caught up in ritual observance rather than relational obedience. Religious observance, rather than relational obedience. That's the truth that I think Jesus is speaking into their error. He's calling them not to religious observance for the sake of it as the end goal. No, he's saying that is the outflow of a relationship with Jesus, with God. That is the outflow of an obedient heart which flows from grace. And we're going to unpack all of that. But don't we see that so clearly when Jesus himself quotes from Isaiah, the prophet, from what we know about the Pharisees in these verses, doesn't this quotation just fit perfectly and describe them perfectly? These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. This quotation fits perfectly. That's why Jesus says himself, Isaiah was right. Or the ESV says, well, did Isaiah say about you, you hypocrites? You see, the Pharisees are fixated with these human rules, this religious observance. And that religious observance had taken the priority over a proper heart relationship with the God of that belief. The God who called them into belief. The God who, in some ways, laid down some of these laws to help them, to help his people live in faithfulness to him. But those laws had become primary over him himself. You see, God cares about the hearts of his people. He cares about the hearts of his people. Yes, lifestyle matters. Our choices matter. Discipleship to Jesus matters. Being conformed into his likeness matters. All of that, yes, absolutely. But they matter because they show the desire of our hearts. Jesus makes this abundantly clear by speaking negatively of the heart in verses 20 to 23. Jesus said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles them. For it is from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All of these evils come from inside and defile a person. See, the heart is key because the heart is where sin breeds. 
And so it might be possible to dress the dress up the outer life with this image of respectability, maybe even this image of holiness. But if the heart remains corrupt, then it's all in vain. Isn't that what Isaiah said? They worship me in vain. And it's that error that Jesus is seeking to correct here. Relying on religious observance to make you right with God is never going to be able to achieve that. Jesus knows that. And he's calling it in the Pharisees and those who will listen to say, get your hearts right with God. Your life will follow, but get your hearts right with God. Because putting on all of this religious observance on a cold, dead heart is in vain. And the reality is Jesus has the authority to speak that correcting truth because he is the one who offers heart transformation. He is the one who offers a new heart God had promised that already centuries ago through the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. You see, to be God's people, to be his covenant people is to receive a new heart from him. It's to receive a new spiritually alive heart from him. And that heart represents the epicenter of who we are. It's not just about a cardiac issue. This is the representation of who we are and everything that we are to be. So everything that flows from our heart is then response in response to his new heart that he's put in us. This heart that longs to follow him. This heart that loves him. This heart that longs to live a life that's pleasing to him. And so, yes, there's evident fruit of God's work in our lives, but it comes from a new heart. It's not tacked on to the outside of a dead heart. And it is so important that we understand this the right way around. This idea of belief and behavior. God's transforming work in our hearts leads to a transformed life. The Pharisees got it the wrong way around. They were hoping that, that a particular way of life, and, and let's, get it, let's get it right, this is a very admirable way of life. It's very disciplined. But they were hoping that this particular way of life would make them right with God, would earn favor with God. But God's word is clear. Being made right with God can only happen through Jesus Christ. It is only by the removal of our sin and by his implanting of a new heart within us that we can be made right with him. No amount of work on our part can make us right with him. This is the scandal of the gospel. This is the wonder of grace that Jesus has provided all that we need by dying in our place, taking the penalty of sin, thus removing it from us. This is good news. And so to try to earn our way into God's good books by all of this well-meaning, maybe, religious observance is never going to get us there. Because God cares about the heart and then the life that flows from that heart. And so this transformed life of a Christian, a Christian seeking to live faithfully to God's word, is not an effort to earn salvation and grace. It is the outflowing of having that grace and forgiveness secured for us already. And so the life of a Christian is the life of relational obedience rather than religious observance. It's the flip of what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees were seeking that by religious observance, they were seeking a way to God 
When Jesus, by his death and resurrection, and therefore his offer of forgiveness is saying, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And therefore, out of a, a, a surrendered heart to him, we then live in joyful relational obedience because of everything he's done for us already and what he has secured for us. And so this is correction that Jesus is bringing. And he is the one who has authority to speak this truth because he's the one who offers this transformational heart. And so because of who he is, because of what he teaches, there's two main areas that I think God would have us pay attention to in response to what he is saying to us through Mark 7. I think in response to this, in reality of, okay, well, what does it mean then to live a life of relational obedience? What, what is that about? I think we need to do at least two things. We need to surrender our heart and we need to submit our lives. Surrender our heart and submit our life. What do I mean by surrender our heart? Well, in particular, in this particular instance in Mark 7, Speaking of the hearts and the motivations of the Pharisees, Jesus, as I've said, is the one who has authority to speak because he is the one who sees the hearts of mankind. He is the one who sees into our hearts. He's the one who, who still sees into our hearts today. And, and so perhaps we have been trying to put on a religious front. Maybe we, we've been trying to be seen to do the right things that we think a good Christian should do. But actually our hearts are far from him. Well, Jesus sees that. Or, or perhaps we've been trying to prove ourselves to God because in all honesty, don't we struggle to re recognize that grace is free? We assume there's a catch. We assume that's too good to be true. So we try to earn our way there so that God will grant us his grace. No, no, no. His grace is lavished upon us and how freeing it is to stand under the waterfall of his lavishing grace day after day as we need it. But perhaps we, we struggle that and so we still try to prove ourselves that, yeah, God will love me if I do this or I'll prove myself a good Christian if I do this. Or perhaps actually we, we've held off on surrendering ourselves to God, receiving his forgiveness in the first place because actually we know that we're not good enough. We know our hearts and we know that they are a mess. And, and we know the way we live our lives. And so if it was up to me and goodness, if it was up to anyone else, they would not choose me. God might, might accept and love other people, but he could never love me. Look at the state of me. But in response to those thoughts, the example here from Jesus in Mark 7 shows us the importance of turning back to the word of God and the truth that God has to teach us about how he sees our hearts and how he transforms them. And so how does God see our hearts? Well, firstly, way back in 1 Samuel 16, 7, those well-known verses as, as God is choosing his unlikely king, King David. He says, the Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. God sees our hearts. Therefore, he's able to speak words of encouragement, words of rebuke into the state of our hearts. But not only that, he's also able to see past all the facades that we try to build. These facades of self-sufficiency that, you know, I'm doing okay, I'm all right. Or these facades of, of religious observance that, yeah, I'll, I'll just serve a little bit more. I'll join another team. I'll do something else because that'll, that'll sort out my heart with God. No, no, no. God sees our hearts. And in Jeremiah 17, 10, we read that I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct according to what their deeds deserves. You see, God is the one who searches hearts. We can't hide ourselves from him. We, we may 
be able to fool one another. We may. We can do all the things that, that we think good Christians should do. We may be able to fool even ourselves and maybe others, but we cannot pull the wool over God's eyes. He sees our hearts. And so I, perhaps this morning he's calling us to say, stop pretending and give yourself to me. Give your heart to me in all its fullness. And yes, that might, that might sound like, like a bit of a stinging rebuke. How dare you, Drew, say that I've been pretending at my faith? If the Lord is saying that, then, then also hear the stinging rebuke of that and then let his balm of encouragement soothe you as you recognize that to secure your heart, to save you from your sin, he sent Jesus Christ for you. He loves you and he's calling you to himself. He doesn't want you to live a fake life after him. He wants you to live life in all its fullness for him. So come, receive him. Surrender your heart. Accept that free gift of grace and allow his spirit to wash over you today. And as part of this, although surrendering our hearts to God is clearly an individual thing that we do with him, that he brings about new life in us. Perhaps there is a, a corporate thing here that we need to take account of too, that, that actually to be genuinely living out the New Testament, one another's, of encouraging one another, spurring one another on, nurturing one another, praying for one another's spiritual development and fullness in Christ, then perhaps we need to be a little bit more real with one another about where we are spiritually. Those times, those, those valley times when we are struggling. Some of us have been in a valley for years. We can barely remember the daylight. Well, share that with somebody. Firstly and primarily, bring your heart before God. And then perhaps the, the loving embrace of a brother or sister would, would help as you seek to reorientate your life back to him. Surrender our hearts. Bring it honestly and humbly before the one who sees it anyway. And the, the second lesson and the final thing that, that God may be showing us this morning is to submit our life. In Mark 7, we clearly see Jesus rebuking the Pharisees for, the, for their misguided preoccupation about what their life and how their life is perceived by others. That was the preoccupation. That was the, one of the goals of their life that Jesus rebukes. But as we've alluded to already, that doesn't mean that we then forget about the godly life that we are called to. See, we are commanded to be genuine and proactive in seeking to live a life that pleases the Lord. But the motivation for that is renewed and faithful obedience to the mercy that we've received. Remember Romans 12, 1, in view of God's mercy, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Or the middle of Colossians, when we see that wonderful list of, of how we are now to live as transformed people, it, 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 it hangs in verse 12 as, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, then the life flows from that. And so both, ex both extremes of misunderstanding this balance of, of belief and behavior need to be avoided. And I don't even think it's a balance. They are two, of, two parts of the same thing. So we don't live obediently in order to earn grace. But neither do we disregard our life because we've received grace. So, so we don't live in order to earn it. But because we've received it, we don't remain unchanged. No, in, in, in the words of James... Religion that our Father accepts, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows 
in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Your life matters. Your conduct matters. We learned so much of that through Philippians, didn't we? And James goes on in chapter 2 to say, In the same way, faith by itself, if it is not accompanied by action, is dead. And so, yes, we can, we can falsely look at this two ways. We can either try to put on the life without the change of heart, or we can have a change of heart and not let our life be transformed. And therefore, what are we doing? And so there may well be areas of our lives where, where God's been pointing out, out to us this morning where it's clear that our life does not line up with what we claim to believe. In other words, we're not living in relational obedience. And so perhaps God's challenge to us this morning is, okay, well, what are we going to do about that? How are we going to remove that thing from our life? How are we going to dedicate more of our time to, to good things? How are we, how, what are we going to do? Because to remain unchanged by God's grace doesn't show a life fully surrendered to him. And so as we, as we close this morning, what, what do we hear from Jesus as he speaks truth? Well, I believe he's calling us to relational obedience, not religious observance. And that relational obedience means that we surrender our hearts. It is relational because we are invited. We are forgiven. We are restored for now and for all eternity into God's family. This is relational. God is not calling us from a distance. He's not shouting judgment from afar. He's drawing alongside and saying, come to me. Take my yoke upon you. And it is obedience because we're called to follow. We're called to submit our lives to him in response to the grace that we've received. And so the Pharisees' question in verse 5 might have been, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? Well, I find this wonderful quote from Alistair Begg very helpful. The heart of the Christian isn't found in doing a course in systematic theology or memorizing doctrine to be regurgitated. The focal point for the Christian is a relationship with Jesus to be known and loved by him and to love him in return. To be known and loved by him and to love him in return. Relational, to be known and loved by him. Obedience, to love him in return. And let me stress, as heavy as this might feel, this is good news. This is the life that God calls us to. This is the example that Jesus gave us. This is, this is what it means to faithfully follow him. This is good news for all of us who respond to this. And so, yes, there may be work and, and, and things that we need to do and, and areas of our life that we need to surrender before our Father. And sometimes that could be painful and that could be hard. But the fruit that comes from a faithful life of following Jesus will always be worth it because he is infinitely better. And so I do pray that this is, a, this is an encouragement for our hearts, not because it's easy, but because God is good and he will equip us to live for him as he's called us to. Because following Jesus isn't just about religious observance, it is relational obedience and it's joyful. Even when it's hard, it's joyful. Let's pray together, shall we? Our Father, we, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, we, we recognize that there are times when your word does challenge us. 
But, but we also recognize that because it is you who challenges us, we must listen. We must respond. We cannot take your voice and your call and your word lightly because you have ultimate authority. And so we praise you that even in your majesty, you speak to us. Even in your holiness, you continue to call us to yourself. And so we praise you and we thank you, Father, that in your word, you have given us these wonderful truths. This wonderful truth that we can build our life upon. That, that you offer grace, that you offer forgiveness, that you see the mess of our lives and you love us anyway and you have provided all that we need for salvation and life with you. And so we give you praise. And I thank you, Father, that many in this room know that. We know salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And so I pray, Father, that you would help us to, to not only know that in our heads, believe it in our hearts, but then to live it with our lives. And, and God, I do pray that you would help us uh, to know that truth well, that we would live an obedient, faithful life following you and your word because of your great mercy, because of your wonderful grace, because of you, the reality that you have already saved us. Therefore, we live as transformed people with the new hearts that you've planted within us. And Lord, we recognize that in, in doing so, in seeking to live this faithful life, there are times when you call us to root out sin and to root out uh, excuses and things that distract us from you. And so I pray, Father, that you would give us all the help and all the power that we need to do just that so that we would know the joy of faithful following of you. We would know your peace. We would know the goodness of displaying your life to the world around us. We would see your spirit at work in our hearts and lives, I pray. And Lord, may you help us to encourage one another in this walk with you. Thank you for giving us your family, the church, our family. And I pray that you would indeed uh, encourage us and spur us on as we seek to do that with one another under the guidance of your spirit. So Lord, we give you praise. And I pray that as you speak to us, Father, we would hear your truth and live by it. For your glory alone we pray. Amen.